you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John chapter 15? If you need a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. And in those Bibles, it's page 764. John chapter 15, if you just take one of the church's Bibles and turn to that page, 764, you'll be right where we are this morning. While you're turning, I want to read an email that I received this Monday, this past Monday morning from a friend of mine here at Calvary Church. Listen carefully to what he said. Quote, a year ago, I was 43, saved, successful, employed, married, debt-free, and should not have had a care in the world according to most people's measurements. And I was miserable. Ravi, Ravi Zacharias recently said something like, quote, the most depressing time in one's life is when you've achieved what you perceived to be the pinnacle of success and it fails to deliver the result you expected, unquote. My friend continues, this is where I was. I was frustrated at home, frustrated at work, frustrated with my family, frustrated with God. All around, I've spent much of the last few years discontented with life. I've listened to sermons, volunteered, worked harder in the church, taught, done all of the things that I thought I should, quote unquote, do to be right with God. I ended up more frustrated. I had hopes that a trip to China for business would bring me perspective. I returned with more questions and a bigger sense that life was going to spiral out of control. I then signed up my family for a short-term missions trip, but God brought more questions, not answers. I've tried nearly everything I thought I could do, all to increased frustration. Can you resonate with those feelings? I can. See, last week we were in John chapter 15, and we were looking at the first eight verses. <clears throat> and there Jesus uses this beautiful picture of a vine and branches, a grapevine, producing fruit. And I made four points last week. I said, first off, God wants fruit to be produced. Why else would you own a grapevine except to produce grapes? Second, Jesus is the vine that produces the fruit. It enables the fruit to be produced. Third, we are the branches who bear the fruit as we stay attached to the vine. And that was point four, that as we abide or remain in Christ, we bear much fruit. Now the problem is, if you hear those things that I said last week, or as I've restated them today, there is the possibility of a severe misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding not only in the words that I said, but also in the statements that Jesus himself made. Listen to the last verse from last week. This is John 15, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
It's possible if you stop there like we had to last week and hear that what God is interested in is us bearing fruit, you can come away thinking that God is simply some harsh taskmaster who doesn't care about our lives as long as we produce fruit. As long as we're doing good things, as long as like my friend, we're running on the treadmill of good deeds, that's all he cares about. If we're miserable in the process, too bad for us. After all, he wants his grapevine to produce fruit. That's a possible misunderstanding. But Jesus immediately corrects that by not stopping in verse 8, but continuing on into the passage we're going to look at this morning. It says in verses 9 through 11, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See that last phrase of verse 11? So that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. See, God the gardener is doing what he's doing in our lives, not simply so that we will bear fruit, but so that we will experience joy. This is what he wants for us. You see, after all, if we are branches of a grapevine, we are designed to bear fruit. That's what we are designed to do. And Jesus says, you're most full of joy when you do what you're designed to do. The reason why my friend in his email, after all of the success, being employed, being debt free, the reason why that didn't bring him any joy is because he's designed for so much more than that. God has designed us to do things that matter, that last for eternity. Being successful, being debt-free, those are all fine things. Certainly nothing wrong with any of that. But there's no joy in there. But the real problem and the real question comes. My friend was also teaching Sunday school, going on missions trips, listening to sermons, running on the treadmill, seemingly doing everything you're supposed to do in Christian ways, and yet, no joy. Why not? Well, it was because of a fundamental mistake that he was making, and he was writing in the email to me. There's more to the email than just that, to talk about the mistake that he had been making. And it's a mistake that not only has he made, but it's very common to all of us here. And it's what our passage tries to prevent from happening. And so we want to look this morning at what it is that Jesus says about how we can bear the kind of fruit that produces real joy and to bear it in such a way that we don't end up frustrated and we don't end up spent and tired, but instead end up full 
of joy. Well, the most important verse of the passage that we are looking at, the key verse is verse number 12. After Jesus says, look, God's goal is not to make your life miserable. God's goal is not to prune out anything fun or cool or whatever out of your life so you can produce as much fruit so that he can be this harsh taskmaster. God's goal is for you and I to experience joy. The very next thing Jesus says is, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. That this is somehow the key to experiencing joy in our Christian lives. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, the most important part even of that verse is the second half. It is the foundation upon which the command to love one another is built. Jesus commands us to love each other, but it's built upon the foundation of as I have loved you. So let's think for a moment. How is it that Jesus loves us? How does Jesus love us? Verses 13 through 16 answer that question. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. There are three things that Jesus says characterize his love for us. Three things that he did for us that shows the depth of his love for us. And I want to take them for us in logical order rather than the order they appear in that passage. Number one, he chose us. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you may think, well, it's because I chose to be a Christian. There is some truth in that. But the emphasis here is on the fact that Jesus chose you to be a Christian. You may say, but I responded to an invitation. Jesus says, but I gave the invitation. I invited you to come be part of who I am. And nobody who's here, who's a believer in Jesus, is here except for the fact that Jesus chose you to be here. And you know what? It has absolutely nothing to do with who you are. It has nothing to do with your good deeds. It has nothing to do with your lack of good deeds. It has nothing to do with us. He simply chose us because he's kind. He chose us because he's merciful. We know, don't we? that there's plenty of stuff in our life. He had no business choosing us, 
but he did. Not because we earned it, but because he's kind. That's the first way he expressed his love for us. He chose us. The second thing that he did for us is he befriended us. He befriended us. Now listen, if anybody other than Jesus had uttered these words in John 15, we would have written him off as a blasphemous heretic who is irreverent. For us to be called a friend of God, almighty God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who is infinite and eternal, the one who has created everything, the one whose thoughts are so far above our thoughts as far as the heavens are above the earth, for us to be called his friend? How can that be? The song that we sang at the beginning of the service puts it well. Who am I that you are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call? You see, God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ because he was not interested in simply ruling over us like some sort of taskmaster, but because he wanted to have a relationship with us, a relationship whereby he calls us his friends. Now, the concept of friendship that Jesus draws on has elements to it of equality, of affection, and of openness. Now, we're not equal with Jesus. He is God. But in many ways, he does treat us as being equal with him. We're still commanded to obey him, but he treats us not as servile, low beings, but became one of us so that he might be our friend. After all, if you're a believer in Jesus, it says that we are brothers and sisters with him, co-heirs with him, that God somehow looks at us and treats us in many ways as he treats Jesus. And that Jesus has not simply come among us to order us around. But instead, he has befriended us. He has shown us affection. He's opened up his life to us. He shared his joys and his struggles with us. He says, I haven't treated you like some sort of slave who has no idea and simply does what he's told to do because I said so. That's not how Jesus treats us. Instead, he treats us as friends. And he opens up to us what he's about and what he's doing. And he shares with us what the Father has shared with him. And Jesus has chosen us and he's befriended us. And then finally, Jesus has sacrificed for us. It says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You see, he not only picked you and I, those of us who were vile sinners, who had done things that we can't even speak about. He not only chose us, he befriended us. And he not only befriended us, he chose to give up his life for us. You see, we are unacceptable to God. So Jesus came as one of us to die in our place, 
to provide forgiveness for all those things that we can't mention, for all those things that we have done and have been done to us. Jesus came and died for us. And what he's saying is, is there's no greater love than this, that Jesus put our needs above his own, that our need for a savior and our need for forgiveness mattered more to him than his need to stay in heaven and to avoid harm, that he considered our interests above his own interests. And so he became one of us and laid down his life for us, dying when we should have died, paying the penalty for our mistakes, for our disobedience, for our sin, so that we might experience a relationship with God. That's how Jesus has loved us. He chose us, he befriended us, and he sacrificed himself for us. Now, what was the result of Jesus loving in this way? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What is the emotional response that Jesus is now experiencing because of his love for us? It's joy. That's what motivated him to choose us, to befriend us, and to sacrifice for us, is now he is experiencing the joy of having a relationship with us. Do you not think that Jesus is joyful at what we saw happening at New City Church? Do you not think that fills his heart with joy? Did you see that young African-American girl who said last year I was out clubbing and this year I'm in a relationship with Jesus? Do you not think that fills him with joy? That where she had been, she's been rescued from death and from destruction and now she is a friend of God? That's joyful. So Jesus says, I did all of that for the joy that was set before me. So now back to John chapter 15. He says, God's goal in all of this is that my joy might be in you, that you might experience the same joy that I get to experience. Jesus is not some sort of servant who's simply slaving away trying to produce fruit. He is enjoying bearing the fruit. And he says, this is what I want for you. So how do we experience that kind of joy? Jesus says, will you do what I did? Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. So how do we love one another? Well, we choose, we befriend, and we sacrifice. For example, husbands, do you want to know joy? Choose your wife as the object of your love. Not because of anything she did. Not because she's worth it, and I'm not saying she's not. <laughs> but simply because Jesus chose to love you you choose her. Number two, befriend her. 
that means treat her as your equal. Not simply somebody to do your laundry or provide you with some level of physical gratification. Befriend her. Affection. Open your life to her. Share with her your joys and your struggles just as Jesus shares his joys and struggles with us. He doesn't simply command us around. He opens his life to us. And if you want to love as he loved, you must befriend the one you've chosen. And then finally, sacrifice for her. Consider her needs to be more important than your own. For example, consider her need to have communication from you to be more important than your need to watch TV. That's how love works. Jesus says, if you want to know joy, you got to go the same way I went. You choose, you befriend, you sacrifice, and then you experience joy. Husbands, you want that kind of joy? Follow in his footsteps. Junior high, small group leaders, you want to know joy? Choose the junior hires in your group to be the objects of your love. Not because they deserve it, <laughs> but because Jesus chose to love you. You choose them. Number two, befriend them. Yes, they're still supposed to obey you, just like we're supposed to obey Jesus. But they're not your slaves. Open your life to them. Interact with them as equals. Show affection. Number three, put their needs above your own. Their need for someone to take them out for lunch and to invest in them and be interested in them, consider that more important than your desire to go play golf this Saturday. That's how love works. That kind of love leads to joy. You want to know joy? Find somebody in this world who is financially destitute. Number one, choose to love them. Not because they deserved it, but because Jesus chose you. Number two, befriend them. Treat them with equality and openness and affection, not simply the object of your mercy or your pity but a real human being who needs a friend. Open your life to them. Don't simply come in and rescue them out of their misery. Share your life with them, your struggles, your joys. What they need is not simply a $20 bill. They need a friend. Befriend them. And number three, sacrifice for them. Consider their needs for a more extravagant month of grocery shopping to be more important than your need for a new gadget from the Apple store or whatever. That's love. When you love in that way, you experience that kind of joy. You want to know love? Want to know joy? Find a senior adult in this congregation. Choose to love them. Not because they'll be able to love you back, 
not because they've deserved it, not because you have a lifetime of them pouring into you, simply because Jesus chose to love you, you choose to love them. Befriend them, meaning treat them with respect and honor, openness and affection. Share with them what's going on in your life. Embrace what's going on in their life and sacrifice for them. You want to know joy? Find somebody who's dying of cancer. Choose to love them. Not because they'll have the energy to love you back, but because Jesus loved you. Befriend them. Treating them with dignity and honor, openness and affection. And sacrifice for them. Jesus says, that's the pathway to true joy. The question remains, why wasn't my friend, whose email that I read to you at the beginning of the sermon, why wasn't he experiencing joy in all his Christian service? It's because when Jesus says in verse 12, love each other as I have loved you, he doesn't just mean love each other after the pattern I've set for you. He does mean that, but he doesn't mean just that. What he means in addition is love each other out of the love I have for you. That's why he says, remain in my love. See, the problem is, is Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The point is, is that if we are not constantly loved by Jesus, we will not be able to love others. You see, Jesus' love for us is not a one-time act that happened 2,000 years ago. He still loves us today. He's still choosing us, despite all of the mistakes that we make. He's still befriending us. He's still sacrificing for us. Yes, he's not dying over and over again. But he's putting our interests above his own. He's seated at the Father's right hand hearing our requests and asking on our behalf. He's still showing us affection. He's still opening up his life to us. And when you and I love others out of that love, well, that's what it means to remain in Christ. So my friend in the rest of his email, that was the opening paragraph. The rest of the email was him telling about how God has found him in the midst of his frustration and has been loving him. He's been loving him, my friend said, by surrounding him with Christian friends who have been pouring into him and looking out for him. God has loved my friend by being, meeting with him here in the worship services at Calvary. That despite my friend's frustration, that God has been showing up here and speaking to his heart. That God has been pruning his life, cutting back things that were interrupting his fellowship with Jesus. That God has been loving my friend by reminding him gently, apart from me you can do nothing. You've been trying to love others, but you've not been letting me love you. And by reminding my friend that he does love him. And you know the reason perhaps why that email struck me so 
powerfully. Couldn't be a coincidence that Monday morning when I came in to start writing the sermon, that email was waiting for me. That God's been working on him for two or three years, but he just felt a compulsion to send that email this week on Monday morning. And as I read through all the things that my friend had said, it reminded me that this was not just his journey. This has been my journey too. That for however long I have been trying recently to live my Christian life and be a pastor in my own strength and in my own power. But apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And so I went away on my study break and the reason why it was so powerful and so incredible, it was simply five weeks of God reminding me that he loves me, filling me up with the fact many of the same things he had been doing for my friend, I realized he's been doing for me. That instead of just saying, look, you're a pastor, get on with it, he was kind enough to open up himself to me, to share with me, to treat me as a friend. He reminded me that, look, I didn't choose you to be a Christian or to be a pastor because you had anything going for you. I chose you because I chose you. And that's it. And God reminded me that he still loves me, that he's my friend in all of this. And that's a powerful thing. So if you're here this morning, what Jesus is saying to you is, look, God's not some evil taskmaster who's trying to squeeze as much production out of you as possible and then throw you away when you're done. What he is is a God of all love who chose you, befriended you, has sacrificed already for you, and has given you and I the opportunity to do the same thing so that we might experience the same joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the love that you have expressed to us in Christ Jesus and continue to express to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I know for sure there are others here who when I started reading my friend's email, that their hearts began to say, that's me. I know there are people here who are frustrated. I know that there are people here whose Christian lives are lacking joy. God, would you meet them and remind them that it is out of your love and as we follow in Christ's footsteps that we experience joy. And would you show them as you've shown me how it is that you're continuing to love us day in and day out. God, who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you even consider what we're going through? But you've called us friend. And more than that, you have sent your son to die so that we might have life with you forever. I praise you. Father, I also know that there are some here this morning who do not have a relationship with you. I pray that even now as I'm praying, in their mind and in their heart, you, they would hear your voice calling them to you, that they might know that you have chosen them, that you have called them by name, that you want to befriend them, and you want them to experience the benefits of Christ's death for them. Do that now, Lord as they listen. May it not be my voice, but yours they hear. Father, help us as we go forth from this place to love each other as and through 
Jesus' love for us. It's in his name that we ask. Amen.